to the Jungle Times, a podcast that explains how understanding nature's management principles can help you enhance your personal power and leadership skills. In a world beset by climate change, mass migration, and social unrest, fake news and bad politics are threatening the future of our planet. This series of timely presentations will demonstrate how nature's 4.5 billion years of success is based on the emergence of creative leaders. It is my pleasure to introduce your guide, the only researcher on Earth who treks tropical jungles in a wheelchair, author and training consultant, Lawrence Poole. Welcome to the Jungle Times podcast. I'm Lawrence Poole, and this is episode number eight called Climbing the Leader Ladder, Part 2. This second part in the series is subtitled 10 Steps to Acquiring Personal Power. Throughout this presentation, I'll discuss personal power from the perspective of having the ability to alter your perception in order to actualize goals. My understanding of personal power includes acquiring the social skills and emotional intelligence to lead others. Leaders with personal power know that their influence is limited to how well they manage relationships. The main strength of that power is based on integrity. A leader with personal power must inspire others to perform at their best, to bring their skills and talents to the table, and to use them for the benefit of the whole team. Only then do they help an organization to succeed. Last time, I spoke to you about leadership as it applies to pyramid systems. Top managers, middle managers, supervisors, and then workers. And I explained how the pyramid form, the structure, lends itself to fascism. I discussed 14 ways of thinking that galvanize people into fascist political regimes, and I suggested how leaders should flatten the pyramid. In this episode, I'll talk to you about the evolutionary process, how to expand your awareness so that you creatively empower yourself. A car accident caused me to change my way of seeing more than 40 years ago. During the ordeal that followed my hitting a pole at 70 miles an hour, I was thought dead and broken in so many pieces, I was hospitalized for months. I experienced being out of my body I had visions of pure light. Since then, I've not had the luxury of denying God, even if I wanted to. In a single instant, I lost every notion I'd held about the creator of the heavens and the earth, and I adopted a new understanding. I now saw creator, the world, and me in it as limitless energy. In other words, while physics explores the world of matter and motion, Metaphysics studies the questions that relate to mind and emotion. Both physics and metaphysics together can offer us a quantum view of things. That view describes the objective universe and its eye perceivers. Their findings provide us with descriptions of nature that include quantum chemistry, quantum field theory, and quantum psychology. Since my accident, Along with my exploring nature's management strategies, I explored its metaphysics too. I contemplated thousands of bits of jungle by asking the same questions. Why does Creator favor this idea? Why is that strategy survival-wise? 
One of the questions I asked myself when I wondered about human nature and the many failed leaders who have cost us so much over these last many years was this one. Does Satan or an evil force exist? And my short answer was, evil most certainly does exist. There are concentration camps and killing fields in enough places on this earth to convince me. But nature allows no place for a universal Satan, though, even if evil can be found on this planet. There is, however, no evil outside of human behavior. In the absence of love, evil does exist in human behavior. Throughout the ages, the absence of love has allowed people to demonstrate the most primitive of emotions, and this caused them to act out in the extremes of anger, hate, and greed. And after falling into demented states, humans have performed every destructive and mean-spirited behavior imaginable. I looked for causes why evil is a force in human history, and found the subject rather well explained in a fascinating book by Howard Bloom, called The Lucifer Principle, A Scientific Expedition into the Forces of History, Bloom explains how evil is in fact present in human nature, and, in his very readable and highly entertaining account, he explores five ideas that explain how evil is present on Earth today. A Renaissance thinker and an excellent metaphysician, Bloom explains five concepts that have shaped human destiny. He calls the first one a genetic replicator. Number two are superorganisms. Three explains memes. Number four is a neural net. And five is us, the pecking order. I've discussed some aspects of these ideas in previous podcasts. Bloom describes his first concept, the genetic replicator, as a particular aspect of self-organization in nature. The genetic replicator is the wee bit of fact that allows living systems, like bacteria, genes, mammals, and people, to duplicate with shameless ease. The genetic replicator explains how a physical system capable of drawing energy from its environment can make relatively accurate copies of itself. The dynamic is described in the notions of replication, mutation, selection, and adaptation. The genetic replicator explains the prosperity aspect of God's survive and prosper command. Biology has a role to play in the behavioral sciences, much like physics does in the natural sciences. But in the same way that physics studies elementary processes that underlie complex systems in nature, biologists study characteristics of replication, in particular those characteristics such as similarities and differences in morphology, physiology, and behavior. In the same way that we cannot deduce all the characteristics of a system from studying the laws of physics, we can't deduce all the dynamics of social life from our biological principles only. In this sense, the best way to understand replicator dynamics is to study its metaphysics. Replicators will make copies of themselves with limited interference from external conditions, and that includes information under which competing replicators will respond. The COVID-19 variances, for example, 
show us how quickly viral conditions cause their own mutations. The idea of replication includes survival of the wisest as a replicator rule. We can see that past strategies are replaced by modified better strategies. Nature ensures that replicators with successful strategies will replace those with less successful ones. In fact, survival of the fittest has to be replaced in our thinking with survival of the wisest because that is what our observations constantly show. Nature tells us to adapt and fight this pandemic so that we can emerge stronger from it. Bloom's first idea recounts the ease with which nature replicates living systems. When a man falls off his elbows, the woman can start counting down from 280 days until a new birthday. This first Luciferian principle says that any one of us is shockingly expendable. Consider the more than 7.5 billion people who are alive on the planet today, with more being replicated every day. We only hear about the deaths of the rich and famous, the less than 1% who are the elite few. The other 150,000 people who die each and every day must be remembered locally for a short period of time in the minds of their loved ones. But those deceased are forever gone from this physical world. And Howard Bloom tells us that as a universe slowly ticks away its continuum of billions of years, individual life and death are not very important issues. Nature has decreed that it is entirely up to the individual to assure that creators survive and prosper law prevails. Because the law demands that we behave with altruistic self-interest, everyone has to acquire that wisdom in order to continue to play the game of life. I think a lot of people have not yet learned how to play the game as nature demands, though. You'll find a link with the description of episode 3 of this podcast to a webpage where you can download a free copy of James Carson's book, Finite and Infinite Games so you can at least learn the basic rules to the game of life. Consider that the individual is too insignificant to change the whole, that no one can break nature's law, even if we can break ourselves against it. Play by the rule. Everybody must self-empower in order to survive and prosper. Believe whatever you'd like, but remember, it's a jungle out there. Bloom's book describes his second Luciferian principle as the rise of the superorganism. He uses the term superorganism to describe any highly organized social unit where the division of labor is specialized and where individuals are not able to survive alone for any extended period. Watch a show called Naked and Afraid on YouTube to see if human society qualifies you'll find that 21 days is a long time to survive alone in the jungle. Bloom's premise points out that we are less individualistic than we like to think. He describes nature's process by which every system is part of a larger organizing system. We are not even a single group of individuals. We are divided by maps that define us by race, by language, by belief, and more. Individually, we respond to what our larger organizing body tells us to do. We were raised by a larger group by answering to the pressures of 
conformism slash ostracism. Like cogs in a machine, we became parts of a larger social order or rebels who lashed out against it. Societies tried to bury individualism by demanding group think from their members. It is uncomfortable to be the local fool, so conformity is easily adopted. A group rule is be like us or go. Tribal genes are forged with that demand for adaptation, so conformism means success. Take a look at the concept of honor killings, where one actually murders family members who do not surrender to tribal expectations. In the jungle, ostracism from the tribe is a quick cure for many woes. But the superorganism is wrong to demand mindless conformity. As its own survival is dependent on the collective wisdom of the tribe, allowing individual members the creativity to expand makes more sense. Bloom's book has a third Luciferian principle concept called the meme, which means a cluster of ideas. Memes are buzzwords that are shared by a group. Dentists have their jargon, as do computer experts, airline pilots, mechanics, musicians, gang members. Every group has a way of communicating. A psychotronic phenomena, a meme describes a symbol or code that binds people into groups. It's the mindset that forges cultures and cults. Memes are that collection of neural links that become the perceptual codes that differentiate us from them. Memes include rallying cries and slogans like Black Lives Matter and Me Too. Memes can also be theme songs, flags, t-shirts, club rings, and secret handshakes. Memes have the power to galvanize people and to compel like a national anthem obliges us to stand. They affect and influence the fear of ostracism neural circuits that are lodged in the deepest levels of our brain. This is why we feel humbled by our perceived betters, like political leaders, wealthy people, or movie stars. Memes divide us from them. Bloom's fourth concept is called the neural net. He refers to the collection of neural pathways in subjective brains. Individual neural nets develop into full-fledged paradigms of thought in the mirror of our self-reflection. This is why fascist thought becomes a full-fledged political belief. Neural nets form superhighways to our primitive tribal brain. This Luciferian principle explains the price we paid for our hardwired human brains. These tribal neural nets are very easy to manipulate. Just listen to politicians who excite our primal fears. As they promote their us-versus-them divisions, you can be sure that they have an agenda. If you don't stand for the national anthem, you will be pointed out, so you can be scared into submission. I remember a political leader who referred to the Canadian flag as a piece of red rag. He worked Canadians into a real feeding frenzy and reaped his just reward by not being re-elected. He learned the hard way that no one needs an enemy. Once our groupthink identity is fired up, we look for cues from our leaders to see how we should react. When a majority of people recoil from a leader's suggestions, he will fail. If cued in, though, 
Our group mind overpowers the personal mind. This because when we are fired up, we think poorly and need strong leaders to guide us. The fear tactics used by Donald J. Trump, for an example, fueled hatred and demonized fellow Americans who have different points of view on how to solve collective problems. Trump maintained a divide-and-conquer tactic and thereby inflamed the violence that caused misguided minions to attempt an insurrection on the U.S. Capitol. Trump's mob killed fellow citizens, including a police officer. Trump acted to the detriment of others, but that proved detrimental to him as well. By dividing the American tribe into good folks like me and losers like you who prefer other ideas, he undermined his own re-election. Luciferian leaders propagate fear to develop the belief that we need to be led by them. They pretend that only they have solutions to our collective problems. In a previous podcast, I mentioned a KGB study that shows how people who are bombarded by fear-inducing messages for as little as three months continue to react to that fear long after any danger is passed. I'm supposing that Trump will continue to profit from his lies for many more years to come. He gets away with it because of Howard Bloom's fifth concept called the pecking order. Also known as the social hierarchy, this idea describes how power is distributed in society. We see the drive to acquire position in the posturing of jackals around the carcass, or when a bear has to beat a wolf out of his lunch. If you can imagine humans trying to divide a suitcase full of cash, you'll get a flavor for the drive for power over others. The fact is that weak people believe they need strong protectors in the same way that small groups think they'll get handouts from larger ones, or poor countries believe they have to borrow from international bankers. In other words, because a need unsatisfied is a negative motivator, pyramids of power want to dominate the food chain. And like the rock and roll song says, everybody wants to rule the world. The climb up the social hierarchy is a lot more basic than you think. If a monkey decides that it wants a choice banana, it need only assert itself. And, if successful, if its boldness allows it to beat the clan's elite rulers to the prize, and if it resists the other dominant monkeys, it'll win. But the rules suggest that it must assert its position to all pretenders until it is fully understood and completely accepted as a new leader. From the hominid brain perspective, those alpha grunts are codes of behavior that we adopt even in polite society. Our social pyramid is rules. To meet the Queen of England, for example, you'll learn a protocol. If you don't agree to the protocol, you don't meet the Queen. If anyone thinks about agreeing and then breaking the protocol, Her Majesty simply switches her purse to her other hand, and minions quickly and efficiently whisk you away and erase your faux pas and effrontery. Society is clearly divided between us and them, so boorish behavior will quickly be overcome, but never forgotten. You might agree that it's time that we shook off our old neural pathways. Our genetically inherited responses to the hierarchy are primitive, and there's a huge, a colossal price to pay by supporting the elite view of the world. 
Folks, we've allowed a new world order to change our national laws that give corporations more rights and freedoms that are granted to individual citizens. While we were asleep at the switch, we were infested by a Fourth Reich. That is to say, fascism was slowly imposed on our management system over time. Fascists are exploiting the newest versions of the Golden Pyramid scam today. Take a closer look at the complaints lodged with the United Nations to help you figure out who the bullies are in the schoolyard of international nation building. Then go to your local playground to learn the life lessons on how the pecking order develops. Next, watch local politicians and look into their business connections. Look at the executive elite to see how perks and privileges are bandied about, how wealth is shared among the very few. And look at the minions who, like most people, are wannabes. Howard Bloom's five ideas tell us that Lucifer is alive and well on planet Earth today. He runs rampant in human behavior. In the same way that we are free to live God's state of grace, we'll also put ourselves above the eye of God to do as we want. I explain nature's principles of self-management, specifically the principle of self-preservation, in my podcast number three, How Nature Manages Complex Situations. Life churns out copies of itself with great efficiency, but its genetic programming replicates the tendency to act barbarically. It's easy to understand in a six-step process. Step one, we replicate to survive and prosper. Step two, groups survive and prosper better than individuals. Step three, X, Y, and Z defines our group from those others. Step four, we believe that God is with us. So if you are not with us, you must be against us and against God. And then, most often brutally, step five, our group is oppressed by them. And therefore, we must exercise our God-given right to defend ourselves. So, step six, we attack them. Bloom explains the herd think that concentrates power into any leader who will manipulate these five ideas. History also shows us, he says, that every group's fortunes change over time. And this explains why a leader's policies are so often wrong. Recent events will confirm his thesis. When people were faced with an uncertain future, a great number of them easily surrendered their vote to a flim-flam man, Donald Trump and his strongman ideas. Fear makes us come together for protection, and then we'll share memes and quickly gel into a mob. And the mob will invariably follow any moron who, like a predator, was just waiting for a crisis. When we are overwhelmed by primitive emotion, we can easily be driven by mob means to commit atrocities in the name of good. When the mob spills out into the street and riots while leaders scream at them to right imagined wrongs, it embodies the Lucifer principle and becomes evil. Think about it. I'll be right back. You don't have to be afraid. You can move your assemblage point away from fear. 
The assemblage point accounts for the most amazing aspect of human existence. It describes the relative point of awareness from where the individual assembles his or her perceptions of the world. One of the most important discoveries of the last century is that we are perceivers. We do not receive an objective view of the world out there. We perceive a world that we assemble in here. Some people are assembling a view of the world by reacting to fear or anger. Others act with love and joy. In part one of my podcast on leadership, I spoke about the political left or the political right as society's way of assembling a worldview. Anthropologist Carlos Castaneda, in his books on his apprenticeship with a very wise shaman in Mexico, describes a concept that most people have never heard of before, moving our assemblage point. From an old Yaqui Indian, Castaneda learned that in fact only the creative spirit can actually move the assemblage point, as there is no real procedure to do it. When I read his account, I already knew what he was talking about. I had a different life before than the one I assembled after my accident. I told you a little bit about my death experiences and how they stopped my forward momentum. But once I was stopped, my perception moved to what Castaneda calls the place of no pity. From there, the spirit touched me, and that facilitated the movement of my assemblage point to a new position. The assemblage point is an essential component of human perception, but most people don't even understand it nor can they assemble the world that they want. Most are not aware that their perception of the world is the result of an arbitrary position of their assemblage point, sort of like the number on a radio dial. Are you tuned in to classical music or to classic rock? There's an infinite number of channels that you can tune into. In episode 5 called Love is Magic, I explain how everything in the physical world, including we human beings, is part of the limitless oscillations of vibrating energy of universe, that is to say, the L-O-V-E, the love of God. Everything is that limitless energy. In that fifth podcast, I led a mental exercise wherein we shrank planet Earth to the size of a cherry and correspondingly shrank the cherry down to the plus or minus 25,000 miles, the equivalent of the planet's circumference, to reach the atomic worldview. I then suggested we watch the awesome power released from that atomic world via a YouTube video called the Tsar Bamba. That atomic explosion broke buildings some 900 kilometers away from blast center. Within that atomic level, the world and everything in it is composed of limitless oscillations of vibrating energy, L-O-V-E. Countless energy systems are assembled as the infinite universe. Each of these systems is assembled from its center to a relative circumference. As such, galaxies, stars, planets, and then biological tissue, molecules, and atoms are the very same energy. And as they oscillate outward, every system has a center of rotation. The human body is one such complex energy systems, but our energy properties are largely being ignored. It is not surprising that conventional science has yet to study humans as spheres of energy, 
much less systems with epicenters and assemblage points. But so be it. Not too long ago, we didn't understand invisible things at the level of bacteria and viruses, and now we're flooded with pictures of the COVID-19 virus. In order to think of themselves as spheres of energy, we guide participants in our training programs in Costa Rica on how to measure and see it. On the lawn and the gardens of our hotel, we ask people to use lengths of string from a large ball of it we produce, and they measure each other. They'll mark out a point at the base of their spine called the cauda equina, or the horse's tail. This is where the spinal cord frays out to become countless fibers, sort of like angel hairs that we hang on a Christmas tree. As those fibers are extensions of the neurons that transmit messages throughout the nervous system, they also broadcast those messages into cosmos. The assemblage point's position in the human energy field is the key to understanding our physiological and psychological well-being. It determines our state of mind and also influences other energy systems in our body, like our chakra system, a.k.a. the glands of our endocrine immune system and the organs associated with them. Healers who work with the assemblage point consider that if it's not in its position at the center of our sphere of energy, its displacement is responsible for the majority of physical and psychological diseases that we might endure. Castaneda's shaman told him that the current position of his assemblage point, near the thymus gland in his chest, was not always its normal position, that in antiquity it was lower near the solar plexus. In episode number five, I offered various correspondences for our human amplitudes of energy. In that view, seven chakras connect great bands of energy to form aspects of our perception or levels of awareness. According to the theory, chakras are transducers of energy, changing it from one form to another. As such, our first chakra bundles the fibers of perception that are linked to our physical survival, and our second connects the fibers that connect to our emotional needs or to our sexual drive, that is, the need to prosper. Beyond our obligation to survive and prosper, our third chakra connects our perception to an intellectual view of the world, while the fourth connects us to the spiritual plane and its law of love. Our central nervous system includes the brain, the spinal cord, and their peripherals. The brain plays a major role in the control of most of our bodily functions, including movement, sensation, thought, speech, and memory. Some reflex movement occur via the spinal cord pathways, without the participation of the brain structures, though. And then our endocrine immune system shapes our feelings and moods. In the energy view of things, gray matter, or the tissue that fabricates the brain and spinal cord, is akin to fibers carrying electrical impulses. The actual gray of this matter is only found in the outside layer of the brain, though, and it predominantly contains that part of the neuron where the DNA cell is located. Our gray matter participates actively in the storage and processing of information. Nerve cells in the gray matter reach out to other areas of the brain as bundles of fiber. Some fibers carry electrical impulses to the body while others bring messages to the brain from parts of the nervous system. 
fibers from the brain to the brain stem and into the spinal cord are called corticopontine tracts, and those that run from the spine to the brain are called corticospinal tracts. The spine carries signals or messages back and forth between the brain and the peripheral nerves. Every part of our body communicates with us thanks to our brain and spinal cord and how they assemble our perceptions. Signals are collated with both our subconscious mind and our conscious intent. For example, breathing is determined by our subconscious mind, while smoking requires a conscious choice, even if it is habit-forming. When my spinal cord was severed in the car accident, the communication between my brain and my body was cut off. I was therefore paralyzed at the T4 level, that is to say my fourth thoracic vertebrae. Before, I was body aware below my lesion, now I am not. Before my thoughts reached me from my subconscious, now I consciously go to them. The ascent of my assemblage point gave me a great advantage. To keep it fixed on my heart allowed me to live in a state of grace, that mood wherein you feel like the world's luckiest person. What many psychotherapies take months or even years to achieve, moving your assemblage point to the center of your chest stimulates your thymus gland and produces amazing results. This can be done through a focused meditation or by performing random acts of kindness. Once your assemblage point shifts, the change of attitude is almost immediate. If your assemblage point is moved only fractionally higher to a better place, you'll gain in terms of vitality and peace of mind. You'll also have the increased ability to ward off psychological and physical challenges to your well-being. Move a little higher than that, and you can assemble the creative worldview available as their higher mind have you assembled by including the fifth, sixth, and seventh chakras. There, at the apex of your spiritual plane of consciousness, at the top of your fourth or your heart chakra, you can ascend into the atmic plane of awareness and draw from its creative synthesis. Wikipedia tells us that attaining atma is a universal principle. The atmic plane of awareness is beyond identification with the material world. It is where particles of matter become waves of energy. It is also that joyful state of mind I describe as God's grace, or where we experience divine essence or joy. Atma is at the supreme tip of spiritual awareness. It is where you recognize yourself as a soul. Here your energy resonates to universal energy in the experience of love. The reaction of being one with the limitless oscillations of vibrating energy, or the L-O-V-E of universe, is the ascent into spirit. In order to maintain your position in that exalted place, you'll have to assemble the self-knowledge available at your sixth chakra. Here you assemble the monadic plane of awareness. A term borrowed from science, Wikipedia describes a monad as a singularity. The monadic plane explains the state of oneness with the Supreme Being. By assembling your perception in from that state of awareness, you understand the divine in all things. In fact, this is the place from where you draw your reason for being. It is where you learn to marry your contradictions as in plus one plus minus one equals zero. 
in order to answer divine law, that is, love without condition, only then do you have the integrity to lead others. All references to the law are to be resolved at the seventh chakra, where you'll assemble the logoic plane of awareness. Esoteric philosophy tells us that the logos describes the incoming word of God, that force that caused the Big Bang. The logoic plane is where quantum energy is perceived as pure light, or God-awareness. It is where we actualize the essence of I Am. Here we see the divine omnipresence in nature and surrender to it. Creator is the world at the physical plane of existence. We'll experience God as the biological world or life itself if we feel love at the emotional level. God is the molecular structure of universe, its matrix, and this realization is held the intellectual plane of existence. God is also at the spiritual plane when we assemble awareness of the atomic world and its plus-minus polarities. The human sphere of awareness is assembled from physical, emotional, intellectual, and spiritual fibers of awareness. We can expand our sphere by consciously assembling the atmic plane, which includes perception of God as the particle wave reality. There, the world is not either matter or energy, rather it is both, with the realization that you should assemble joy. Then, at the monadic plane, you'll reconcile with God by assembling oneness, as contained in the universal equation plus one plus minus one equals zero. That equation introduces God as the universal I am. The logoic plane, then, is where you participate in the my father and I are one reality by adding yourself the qualities you need to assume your role as a creative leader. After all of that, the order of universe will reveal an eighth plane of awareness called the morphic plane. Morphos describes secondary energy, the energy of dream. The word morphos comes from the Greek meaning form or structure, but the idea behind the morphic plane is described as the collective memory. It is the infinite intelligence available in dream. It is the world contained as the main stream of consciousness. In Ovid's Metamorphosis, Morpheus is the son of sleep appearing in dreams to guide humankind. The morphic plane of awareness ties us to God's omnipresence in sleep and dream. The morphic plane also refers to the reservoir of collective memory available to each of us as the intelligence in nature, including human nature and much more. It also includes those things that go bump in the night, the stuff of nightmares. Carlos Castaneda explained that infinity as both an active side and a passive side. We assemble the active side from the first four levels of awareness, the physical, emotional, intellectual, and spiritual planes of awareness. And the passive side comes from assembling the four higher planes, atmic, monadic, logolic, and morphic, these levels of awareness. To know the location of your assemblage point is to understand your creative potential. For instance, someone with a heart-centered assemblage point tends to be happy, healthy, and well-balanced physically and mentally, with little fluctuation. Such a person generally interacts well with others, and is positive when facing the future. He or she is confident and relaxed as a leader. We've all met those real leaders, 
the people who seem to have everything they need, who seem to cope with whatever life throws at them, and who smooth sail their way through life. The fact that we even remember them as leaders shows just how exceptional they are. We want to emulate them. They represent our human ideals. Unless something happened that brings change to their life, it can be something as simple as an increase in stress, like from a sudden change in a relationship with a significant other, or a new job, an accident or an illness that saps their strength. Even something as trivial as exposure to pollution and traffic, any of these things can shift their assemblage point downward from its heart center. This can happen instantly as with the car accident that jolted my energy field and caused severe shock to my whole nervous system, or more gradually, like when someone experiences continued stress until he or she burns out. That burnout expression refers to the state of depression that occurs because a person assembles his or her perception from a lower position that is their normal. We may notice this shift below in ourselves, either as a loss of energy due to a traumatic event, an illness or an accident, or a more gradual exhaustion over periods of time. We'll notice that we can no longer cope with life's events as easily as we once did. We might look back to when we felt more centered than we do now. We are somehow aware of the change, but often we cannot explain why or even how we are different. We are not aware that our assemblage point has shifted below. Our assemblage point moves, and once it has, it can be difficult to return it to its previous place at the center of the chest. Consciously moving the assemblage point upward requires that we climb the leader ladder. The 10-step leader ladder shows us how to locate and shift our assemblage point. I'll discuss ways in which we can do this in the next section and the importance of having a heart-centered assemblage point right after this interlude. But before that, let me summarize the story behind the assemblage point. 1. Human beings are part of the limitless oscillations of vibrating energy of universe, also known as the L-O-V-E, the love of God. As such, our field of oscillating energy has an epicenter of rotation called the assemblage point. 2. The location of the assemblage point on the physical body dictates the quality of one's perception. For example, if you perceive from the fibers assembled by your thymus gland, you experience the world as love. If you assemble the perception of your adrenal gland, you'll feel aggression and fear. 3. The quality of your energy is related to the activities of your nervous system and the seven glands of your endocrine immune system. 4. The activity of your nervous system and its glands determines the position of your assemblage point and vice versa. 5. The location of your assemblage point dictates how you feel, behave, and how you perceive others. 6. When your assemblage point is out of position, relocating it to your heart center will change how you feel and behave. 7. Your assemblage point can remain centered for a considerable length of time, depending on circumstances and events that you experience, but the force of gravity and stress make it easy for it to shift below its usual amplitude. 8. If your assemblage point shifts below your heart center, you will experience the fall as a depression 
or a nervous breakdown. Nine, if you assemble the lower energies, you experience life with a deviance that ranges from mild depression to psychosis. 10. If you surrender the higher energies and assemble your perception with love, you enter a state of grace to feel joyful and lucky, and you can even reach higher awareness. In addition, note that your assemblage point can be shifted by someone with sufficient knowledge of the process. It is easy to move with correct information, and to potentially shift below can harm your psyche. It is also possible for you to assemble a place that you do not deliberately intend, and this can cause both psychological and physical harm. A yogi named Gopi Krishna wrote a book called Kundalini, The Evolutionary Energy in Man, that he dedicated to anyone who may have hurt himself by waking his serpent power. He described a spiritual energy or life force located at the base of the spine and seen as a coiled serpent. An adept of yoga, he aroused the sleeping kundalini power from the base of his spine up through his chakras to penetrate his head. The sudden arousal of this primal soul energy devastated his health. He survived, though, to then thrive and become a great teacher. His book explained that raising his primal energy caused accumulated toxins to be released into his body and to infect him. He cautioned us to be vigilant and to stay pure. Similarly, Kasnada's sage cautions him to strive for impeccability in order to survive the onslaughts from moving his assemblage point. Not surprisingly, knowledge of the assemblage point was largely kept secret and was not explained until the 1960s, first by Kasnada's books and then by Krishna's book published in 1970. Previous to that, one's inner power was manipulated by cults during initiations. We don't know how often the human assemblage point was abused by power-hungry leaders, but we do know that it happens. Inciting a crowd to attack Washington's capital is a recent enough example. The positive side of moving your own assemblage point is that, danger notwithstanding, the ascent in energy will improve your health and well-being you will gain the power to not only change your mind, but to improve the state of your well-being. Think about that, and I'll be right back. In part one of this podcast, I began by discussing the need for good governance on this planet, which, as far as we know, is the only one that we have. In my experience, we're blessed to inhabit a wondrous home. Planet Earth is self-generating, self-sustaining, self-replicating, a wondrous biosphere. Imagine that it offers us more than 1,000 species of vegetable, more than 2,000 species of fruit, and more than 8 million species of fish, fowl, and animal, if only we think of sustenance. I mentioned that 150,000 people die every day, but 385,000 new ones are born each day too. The 140 million extra people that we get every year means that we'll have to manage a population of 10 billion people in 35 years. 
Everything we need for a wonderful life is available, though. We are on this wondrous starship Earth, careening through space. Hold on tight, because we're moving at nearly 30 kilometers a second, or 67,000 miles an hour in our trips around the sun. Plus, the solar system is whirling around the galactic center at 220 kilometers per second, or 490,000 miles per hour. Add to that that we're spinning around our own Earth at 1,000 miles an hour, and you'll be forgiven for feeling a little dizzy. Don't let the dizziness let you forget that fixing everything that ails us is a we thing. Our leaders won't get it done if they insist on playing those old me-first politics that divide the world into us and them. To take up the challenges we all face, we have to understand the world's power hierarchies. I mentioned that there's less room at the top of the pyramid than there is at the base. In fact, that's the source of management frustration. Also, there's a little-known initiation process that promotes the minions into higher management realms. Workers at every level of an organization can become supervisors and then managers, and then managers from any level can become senior managers or executives. But there's more. Do you know about the magical order? That idea explains what goes around comes around. Nature's action-reaction law means that real power requires altruism. I said that leaders with power inspire others to perform at their best, to bring their skills and talents to the table, and to use them for the benefit of the team. Then the organization can succeed. Did you know that men have been initiated into secret cults that profess to understand their higher nature? Not-so-secret societies like the Freemasons, Skull and Bones, Opus Dei, or Scientology have been doing just that for many years. They profess to train leaders, but they only channel people into power pyramids. The Jewish doctrine known as the Kabbalah explains ten creative steps that join the infinite to the world. Through these ten steps, God creates and rules the universe, and by climbing them, we can communicate with the divine. The doctrine describes God's masculine or right-side awareness and his feminine or left-side awareness. These attributes are explained in the ten steps by which the infinite reveals himself in this world. We learn how to become great leaders by climbing these ten steps. Similarly, the proto-Mayan cult of Quetzalcoatl told of a process wherein we become jaguar kings or great leaders who could access godlike wisdom and Christ-like qualities. The ancient alchemists and practitioners of Enochian physics also describe a ten-step ascent to become God as Son. I wrote a book called Invest in Your Creative Capital, which you can order from Amazon or read online for free, in which I describe the human mind as a sphere of awareness. I'll put a link to a free version of that book with a description of this episode to the broadcast. In my book, I explained that the world of paradigms and introduced the concept of mind expansion as the result of provoking a paradigm shift. I didn't get into all the details on how to expand and assemble a higher mind, but I focused on the concept of shifting paradigms. Our lower mind is drawn from our perception of the physical plane of existence, what is at the first chakra. 
plus the emotional plane, what I feel about what is at the second chakra, and the intellectual plane, what I think about what is at the third chakra, and finally the spiritual plane, what is really at the fourth chakra. To reach the higher mind, we need to ascend four more planes. The atmic plane of existence, which supplies a creative synthesis for what is at the fifth chakra. The monadic plane, which defines evolutionary direction and the choices at the sixth chakra. The logoic plane explains self-actualized leadership at the seventh chakra. And the morphic plane of universal memory and intelligence at an imagined eighth chakra. You can expand your sphere of awareness that it overlaps the morphic plane, the mainstream of consciousness. You can be a genius by assembling a higher mind. Expand from being reactive to life circumstances and events, that is, someone not yet aware of his or her potential, through a proactive phase wherein you consciously learn to climb the ten steps. This will allow you to enter a more creative paradigm. Once creative, you learn to navigate across the abyss to become a self-empowered leader. You can experience the state of grace I described as being one with God, manifest by a feeling that you're the luckiest person on earth. You enter that exalted state of grace by stopping time, and you stop time by stopping your inner dialogue and claiming your leadership role. I'll briefly describe the 10 steps that you must ascend. Start at the bottom and see where you end up. Wherever you stop resonating with the ideas I'll present is your limit. Know that there is awareness beyond your limits. Begin your ascent by realizing that you are not part of the social hierarchy or not yet initiated to your leadership potential. Well then, you're part of the billions of people who share the reactive worldview. Life is happening to you, and you are reacting to it. In this worldview, you are more a victim than a willful participant in life's circumstances and events. You might like to think of yourself as a rebel or a loner, but that is only to deny the feelings that you're somewhat lost and you haven't yet found a way that will allow you to choose your own destiny. Well, like I told my kids and then my grandkids a hundred times, Life's rule is this, lead, follow, or get out of the way. Initiation means you must become proactive. I am can learn to take a leadership role. You can climb the ladder. On step one, you learn about the limits of your ego. Beyond your physical, emotional, and intellectual view of things, there is more. You can acquire the awareness of your higher self or your spiritual self. Ego has a more esoteric side. A scholarly view defines esotericism as mankind's secret tradition of inner development. Esoteric studies was developed in Europe in the 17th century, and a wide range of Western traditions and philosophies were influenced by it. Esotericism, given its inherently interdimensional nature, cannot be understood without moving beyond acquiring information. The study of esotericism is mystic because it requires a degree of imaginative participation in what you are studying. The esoteric view says that ego self-dichotomy as the basis of your inner dialogue, 
The ego deals with our perceived what is, while the self deals with what could be. Those traditions suggest that ego must believe so that faith can help it deal with the unknown. Initiation has the initiate move away from belief and disbelief in order to embrace doings and not doings. These will prove or disprove the knowledge that is conveyed. On step two of the ladder, you recognize that you are initiated to higher power. You must adopt a new paradigm based on doings and not doings. You discover that the instructions how to experience a state of grace are transmitted as a neural tradition. The truths to be related are not published, nor are they available to non-initiates. You learn to perform ritual magic so as to break free from your habitual worldview. Climb into step three to become a zealot or a devoted practitioner of the magic arts. A zealot is any person who is fanatical and uncompromising in the pursuit of their ideals. Magic now becomes defined as the doings and not doings that cause change to occur. Know thyself is the key to acquiring magic power. It's all about the new perception and the practices that that requires. Next, on step four, you're called a philosopher. This is where you articulate a philosophy of life. How will your creativity be applied? Will your philosophy be expansive? Does your leadership style understand the science that explains body, mind, and soul? Ego and self are polarities in the universal system. Soul is the system itself. Once you've accepted your philosophical quest, you will expand to the creative paradigm, where leadership requires that you be one with the universal energy. Now you learn that God is the limitless oscillations of vibrating energy of universe. God is the L-O-V-E of the world. So you climb to step five to become an adept. First, you'll be an adept miner to learn that the world is energy in motion. And as the L-O-V-E of God's energy, it is akin to magic power. At this level, the universe is seen as a unified field of intelligence. Vectors in hyperspace allow you to assemble this intelligence and bring it into form, force, and flow. You begin to see that your leadership depends on others. No man is an island unto himself, said the poet. In step six, you become an adept major, that is, an initiate who learns about psi power. That is, you learn to navigate the metaphysical world so as to fill your desires in the physical world. Basically, you'll learn to adapt your subjective behavior to actualize your objective needs. You practice being theatrical so as to transcend social limits. A Hollywoodian expression says it all. You fake it till you make it. And then you ascend to step seven to be exempted from dealing with the mundane. You are now free to seek a direct contact with your higher nature. As such, you must acquire self-discipline needed to connect with the acronym M-I-N-D, Mind, Move in New Dimensions. If you like the images to go with this theory, watch a documentary called Superhuman, The Invisible Made Visible on Amazon Prime. This award-winning film documents the experiences of persons who demonstrate extrasensory perceptions 
that appear to defy the laws of logic. In their passage up the leader ladder, exempted adepts learn to move their assemblage point beyond egocentric perceptions of the world. Empowered leaders must paradigm shift beyond the we versus them thinking. As exempted adepts climb to step eight, they expand their paradigm and become self-actualized masters. They must jump an abyss to do this. If they fail to assemble a new position across the abyss, they'll fall into depression. And unless they've acquired the wisdom from the previous steps, they'll tumble into folly. Watch a video called The Corporation on YouTube, and you'll discover that the best place to hide a psychotic is as the CEO of a large corporation. The story of Icarus is a cautionary tale to explain this aspect of climbing the leader ladder. In the myth, Icarus and his father attempt to escape from the island of Crete by making wings from feathers and wax. The father warns his son of the leader's twin threats, complacency and overconfidence. Icarus ignores his father and flies too close to the sun, and as the wax in his wings melt, he tumbles out of the sky and falls into the sea. Self-actualized masters discover that the I am self-aware must in fact become a servant leader with a single power. The self-mastery means polishing one's character so to actualize God's love, his L-O-V-E, limitless oscillations of vibrating energy. Real leaders share Christ consciousness. Here now and in continuum, I am, in order to merit God's grace as a reaction, must act with love. Mastery of the eight steps, then, requires the initiate to commit to the experience of joy, which comes from love under will. To actualize love, masters perform random acts of kindness and create senseless displays of beauty. Masters love first, and then let God's grace takes care of the detail. To reach step nine, self-actualized masters become full-fledged magi, that is to say, mystics, prophets, or superhumans by any other name, who have learned to connect with the God mind, this by stopping time. This means the magus can stop his or her inner dialogue. Only then is he one with God, the limitless oscillations of vibrating energy of universe. God love is our quantum nature. My father and I are one. Last, you ascend to step 10, where the magus learns how to become a planetary angel. Here you interface with divine intelligence, and so you become super conscious of creator's intent. The bottom line is, during the process, I am has become a self-empowered leader. Now I am is one with creator's intent. Folks, the good news is that in these jungle times of global pandemic and many other challenges that we all face, you can either react to your limits or become proactive, creative, and even initiate to magic. Here now, you can choose a better future and then climb a 10-step leader ladder to make your better future come true. Every leader and aspiring leader, regardless of belief, politic, nationality, or position in the social hierarchy, is somewhere on that 10-step leader ladder. Each step on the ladder has its own rules on how to play the game of life. Every time you ascend to a next step on your ladder, 
there is a risk of falling, and falling means failing. That fall, if you will yourself to rise again and make the concerted effort, will be experienced as the dark night of the soul. Accepting to remain there, to not climb the ladder, means you accept your place as a minion in someone else's life. We have four enemies poised to stop us from taking our rightful place. Our first enemy is called fear, and that one can be transcended with courage. I explained four kinds of courage in episode six and told you how to acquire them. If you are not afraid, your second enemy is clarity. You might think that having a plan is a good thing, except if it holds you back. Clarity will make us rash and overconfident. We may feel that our plan is foolproof, but life will find a way of exposing its flaws. Are you on the path that you should be exploring? Are you called on another path? To avoid clarity as an enemy, anthropologist Carlos Castaneda wrote, a warrior waits patiently and measures carefully before taking a new step. He must think above all that his clarity is almost always a mistake. It means that clarity becomes enemy number two when we are so sure of being right that we expect destiny to act on our behalf. We then become prey to inaction. We don't remember, for example, that the opposite of love is not hate. The opposite of love is apathy. It is not loving. Apathy means doing nothing. Our third enemy is a focus on acquiring power over others. If we overcome fear and can see through the veil of illusion that is clarity, we will want to live on the path of our heart, and so we will have to acquire personal power. As we do, our growing invincibility can make us cruel and capricious leaders. We can become slaves to power itself. Castaneda writes that his teacher told him that he had to overcome this obstacle. A warrior has to defy the lust for power deliberately. He has to realize that the power he seemingly conquered is, in reality, never his. He must keep himself in check at all times, handling it carefully, faithfully, and all that he can to learn. If he can see that power without control is worse than a mistake, he reaches a point where everything will be done in balance. He'll then know how to use power, and he will have defeated his third enemy. If you have given yourself to weakness by acquiring power over others, listen to my list of those 14 fascist characteristics in part one again, to be sure you don't fall off the ladder. I remember the words of Jesus Christ who tells us, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would be fighting and I would not be delivered to the Jews. But my kingdom is not of here. Also, remember that your fourth enemy, old age. A lot of people know about their responsibility to grow because their faith has brought them there. Not many people realize, though, that as we get older, we get more locked into our thinking habits and we have less energy to deal with new ideas and with change. I offer variations on this theme, but consider that if you have an incredible potential, that potential must still be developed. There are a lot of potential geniuses flipping burgers for a living. It is only when you develop your creative capital that you can do exactly what you want every day for the rest of your life. You can only be happy by serving others. Friends, 
There's a pandemic out there, and we're all in it together. While we work to make things better, I challenge you to imagine a better future for yourself. I challenge you to climb the leader ladder. Let me know if I can help you reach for the top. The emerging better world needs you. Thanks for listening. I'll see you again with episode nine. I'll call it the five sacred arts. Did you know that Mesoamericans in the cult of Quetzalcoatl practice five skilled they called stalking, dreaming, seeing, leading, and persuading? Tune in next time and I'll give you all the details. Folks, if you enjoyed this episode of the Jungle Times podcast, please give it a positive review. Tell your friends about it and subscribe to this channel. If you didn't like it, kindly write and tell me why not. If you'd enjoy a transcript of this podcast, visit my website at www.thejungletimes.com. Thanks again. Adios, amigo. The Jungle Times podcast was written and animated by Lawrence Poole. If you enjoyed his presentation, share it with your friends and colleagues, click the like button, and leave your opinions in the comment section. Visit thejungletimes.com to learn more about Lawrence and his adventures. Follow him on Facebook, LinkedIn, or Twitter. You can order his latest book, Invest in Your Creative Capital, from Amazon.com. Subscribe to this channel in order to receive all the latest news. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.